We're, we're finishing, believe it or not. Uh, we've been in Exodus for a long time, and if you've been, uh, a lot of you uh, started coming to this group um, during our Exodus study, so it's not just the book of Exodus that we study in the young adult class, but we've been in it for a while, and uh, today we're wrapping it up. Exodus chapter 40 is the last chapter, and uh, we're going to read it here in just a moment. But before we start, let me pray. Father, thank you for the morning. I thank you for this group, and I ask that this uh, group as a microcosm of the greater church would be pleasing to you. Father, that this group would be a place of, of, of community among believers, that this would be a place of growth uh, and development and sharpening as uh, children of God. And Father, as we interact and participate in the body of Christ here at East Cooper, Father, that uh, that you would use us, that you would teach us in ways that only you can, that we would impact our, our communities and our workplaces um, because of the work that you have done in our lives through the work of the cross. And I ask that you would teach us now, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit as we look at this final chapter in Exodus. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus is a... Narrative, And I say that every week, but I think it's important for us to get into the mindset, to click in place with what's going on. It's really important to understand genre when we're looking at books of the Bible because you have to read it differently. Uh, a narrative is very simply the telling of a story. And what we've been looking at over the past several weeks, past several months, is the telling of the story of how God keeps his promises to and provides for his chosen people. And it's the unpacking of that. Uh, we spent many weeks looking at major themes that we find in the book of Exodus, and today we're at the end. The first half of Exodus uh, is in Egypt. The first half of Exodus, we see the children of Israel become a great nation. We see them in their slavery and in the oppression under the rule of the Egyptians. We see Moses come into the scene as uh, a man of God that he uses as a redeemer and deliverer. We see the plagues that are set out against the people of Egypt as an act of judgment. We see the Passover um, representing um, the coming Christ. We see the crossing of the Red Sea. And then we, move, we moved into the second half of the book of Exodus. And the entire second half is all at Mount Sinai where Moses is having a conversation with God. And Moses is relaying God's word to the children of Israel. And in this ongoing conversation, we see the giving of the Ten Commandments. We see the giving of the law. We see the giving of uh, the laws for righteous living. We see the people agree to the covenant that is made between God and man and the shedding of blood. We see instructions for what it looks like for God to dwell with man, that God uh, gives his law, the people agree, a covenant is made, the people are consecrated, but it doesn't just end there, it doesn't just move forward, and people, it's not just a, all right, so we're all good, but God, God lays out very specific instruction of what community looks like with God, and actually, if you, if you took the entire book of Exodus, the largest amount of content is spent on community with God. Because it's the unpacking of the tabernacle, it's the unpacking of the furnishings within the tabernacle, it's the instructions given for the priests and the priesthood and the garments of the priests. Like that's where the bulk of Exodus is, community with God. And so it's 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 laws like the Ten Commandments, it's it's the consecration and the people agree. 
But then it's a, now that we all agree, now that we're on the same page, that I am God and you are my people, and, and as I am your God and you are my people, I will keep my promises to you. This is what com- community looks like, not among people, but between God and man. So incredibly important. And we, we talked about all those things. We don't need to rehash all of that. But then we have the great sin of the golden calf. Um, the people turn while, while Moses is on the mountain. We talked about it last week. And uh, worship an idol made of gold and attribute the work of the exodus to the, to the calf. And they say, this golden calf is what saved us. This golden calf is what brought us out of, of, out of Egypt. This golden calf is what split the Red Sea for us. And they bowed down, it says, they worshiped and they made offerings. The people were judged, given an opportunity to repent. Um, and then there was a second giving of the, of, of the instructions for community. And we covered all that in, 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 in one week. But there's a giving of the instructions for the tabernacle. There's a giving of the instructions for the priesthood. And then there's a consecration of the covenant. And then there's the golden calf. And then there's a giving of the instructions for the tabernacle and a giving of the instructions for the priesthood and then a reestablishment of the covenant moving forward. And what we find, where we find ourselves now is the people have done the things that God has asked um, and they have uh, done the work that they've been asked of by God to make the, make, the, uh, make the tabernacle and the priestly garments. And then we find ourselves here at the final chapter. Uh, if you would look at... Uh, the last couple of verses of Exodus chapter 39, leading up to chapter 40. Exodus 39, verses 42 and 43, the last two chapter, last two verses of 39. Say this, according to all that the work had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. All right, they obeyed. They did what God had asked them to do as a free will offering. Verse 43, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. So let's read chapter 40. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put it, you shall put in it the ark of the testimony and, and you shall screen the ark with the veil and you shall bring in the table and arrange it. You shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. You shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and ye shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And ye shall set up the court all around it, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. And ye shall take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all of its furniture, so that it may be holy. And ye shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him and you may serve that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you, anoint, as you anointed their father. That they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. 
Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned the fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went to the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So, what we have in chapter 40 here is basically four, four pieces of this chapter. The first piece is the Lord commands Moses to set up the tabernacle and place the furnishings on the first day of the first month of the second year. All right, so this, this tells us that it's been a year since the Exodus. The second part of this chapter is a command by the Lord to anoint, all right, to, to consecrate all of this. So God says to Moses, set it up. The people have made it. They have obeyed. They have done what I have asked. There's a lot of specifics there. They've done what I have asked. They did it. So set it up. Now anoint it. The third part of this chapter is the telling of Moses doing it. It sounds repetitive, but God says, do this, but this and this and this and this and this. And then it says, and then Moses did this and this and this and this. All right, so it, it, it sounds and looks and feels repetitive. The fourth piece is that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the glory lifted, they moved. When the glory stayed, they stayed. And then the, the chapter ends that the Lord was with them throughout all their journeys, which historically in context is the next 486 years, all right, um, which is when Solomon's temple was built and the Ark of the Covenant was moved from the tabernacle into the temple. So the Lord was with them throughout all their journeys, 486 years. First, since we're looking at broad themes in the book of Exodus, uh, we don't need to readdress all of the things that go into the tabernacle or the furnishings or the priesthood. But one, one thing I want to draw our attention to, it's worth noting, is the aspect of repetition here and the aspect of clarity and the attention to detail. Um, how many of you have ever flown on a commercial airliner? I have many times. Um, 
And the checklist process for the pilots is incredibly detailed. And it's something that you do every time. Uh, there's, a, there's a book. And the pilot and co-pilot sit up front and they go through a very monotonous process of check, check, check. The pilot's supposed to walk around the plane himself, even in a bit of cold. And then when you're done, back to the book, checklist, 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 checklist. And the airline industry is notorious for meticulous details. It's, require, it's required by law. E even non-commercial airliners, uh, they're just notorious for me meticulous details. And uh, most of us are not that detailed. If you think about it, if there's any element of your life that you actually have a book that you go to maybe several times a day to check off a process, people would look at you and say, you are OCD, <laughs> and you need help for that. I know somebody here. Call them. <laughs> you know? Like if, you, if you're like, all right, I'm you know, waking up in the morning and I pull out toothbrush and uncap toothpaste, uh, squeeze, you know, half inch of toothpaste on said, you know, I mean, all this different stuff. But, it, but why is it a big deal for a pilot? It's, it's a big deal because there's, there's 200 lives on this airplane. And this, this airplane is traveling at, I'm not exactly sure, three, 400 miles an hour? Anybody? Five? Okay. So if, some, if something goes wrong, it's, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. It, it's, it's, if something goes wrong, it's likely catastrophic. Um, to, for human life, but also reputation of the of the company, and I mean, you'd hate to compare reputa reputation to a, of a company and and the millions and millions of dollars worth of a, of a physical aircraft itself. But I mean, the lives lost, maybe families wiped out, and and, and so the airline industry <clears throat> has determined that it is of the utmost importance to be meticulous. And I've had to deplane. A plane before, and I've been delayed um, for burnt out light bulbs. You know, and and you sit there and you're like, is that worth it? Like we're sitting here, I'm gonna miss my connection. I want to see my parents, or going on a missions trip, or different things. And and the pilots look and they say, this something little is wrong. Uh, this this <coughs> sensor isn't working right, and it's a door sensor or a wheel sensor or a, a smoke detector in the bottom of the plane, I mean, something that you're kind of like, chances are we're going to be okay, you know? But the airline industry has determined that chances are isn't good enough, you know? And, and, and so therefore, you have these aircrafts that are pretty old, in America anyway, <laughs> uh, dozens, uh, decades, 20, 20, 30, 40 years old for some of these, maybe some of these airplanes, but they're, they're just meticulously kept up all the time. Now, I, I drive a 2003 Nissan Pathfinder, and it's got 208,000 miles on it, and it smells a little like a wet dog. All right, it's just, it's a rough car. I didn't pay much for it, uh, but it has an oil leak. Um, my driveway says so. <laughs> and uh, um, I was driving my long commute to work this morning, it was like a quick quarter mile, but I was driving to work and I was thinking, I have not put oil in this thing 
in recent memory. <laughs> like too long, you know? And I'm looking at that little sensor and it's like, it doesn't say my engine's getting too hot, but I'm only driving a quarter mile. You know, and like it's it's irresponsible and it's and it's a bad it's a bad thing, but you just don't operate a plane that same way. So you get what I'm saying. And if and if if you take that concept and that principle, but you apply it to the very holiness of God. That God has said, I am I am of the utmost importance. If you're gonna put a high value on two hundred souls on an airplane, as they say, you know, when an airplane crashes, they lost 200 souls. If you're going to put that high of a value that you're going you're gonna to make everybody delayed, you're going to have to deplane, you're going you're to have to sit this plane down so it's not running, it's not making money, you're not going to do it just so you can change that light bulb, that that's that big of a deal, then when you look at the tabernacle and you look at the priesthood and you say, God is God, he says, my ways are not only best, but they are the only way. The only way. And then I love you that I care for you, I will, I will supply for all of your needs, I will keep my promises, but, but there's some specifics here. And so we've gone through all the instructions of the tabernacle and all the instructions for the tabernacle furnishings and all the instructions for the priesthood, and you read it and you read it and you read it, and we, we kind of joked about how it's not really good quiet time devotional reading. You just, it just seems, it seems detailed and monotonous, but God is saying, look, this is a big deal. There is gravity here, and I'm putting specifics on what my relationship with you looks like. And of all people, I have the right. I have the right. And so just, just as kind of a sub-theme here that we see a lot of detail, this is what God has said. And then you need to anoint all of these things that I said. And then Moses said that he did all the things that he said that God said. And so it's like the, it's like the pilot on the checklist saying that I will do things that I'm asked to do because it is a big deal. It is a big deal. So that's one of the things that we see here in chapter 40. But what I really want us to look at in chapter 40 is how the story ends. We've been, we've been in Exodus. We've been marching through this. We've looked at the, at the highlights and the lowlights. And the end of a story is, is just is, is of the utmost importance, how the story ends. Um, I don't watch too many movies these days. Used to be a huge movie buff, um, but I got uh, married and I got kids, and like so, you know, we're watching Minnie Mouse Clubhouse now these days, and not as great of a movie twists, you know, plots, you know, uh, but you know, you just kind of do what you do. Um, but <clears throat> my wife and, and daughters are out of town; they're seeing they're seeing my in-laws, and so I red boxed a movie this weekend and made myself some popcorn. I was sitting on the couch. Hmm? It was not a Lego movie. It was an adult movie. Not a bad adult movie. <laughs> uh, you know, a, a grown-up movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it was The Accountant. All right, can I spoil it? Can I spoil it? Anybody not want me to spoil it? Okay, don't, you don't want me to? Okay. <laughs> I won't say much, all right, but I'm sitting there watching this movie, and again, I used to be a really big movie buff, so I used to love to really watch how, how movies were written and how they were shot and just character development and all these different things. So I'm watching this movie, eating my popcorn, I'm thinking, okay at best, fun kind of action, 
kind of kind of getting it, you know, a little bit of a shoot 'em up. But I'm kind of watching the movie, and it's and it's it, to me it was dragging just a little bit. Um, but when the movie ended, um, it it tied up all these things that I I didn't really see coming, and it changed it from an okay movie to like that was pretty good, and and it all happened just at the at the very end, you know. So hopefully I'm not giving away too much. Maybe I just totally ruined it for you. But I'm sitting there watching this movie thinking. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of other red box options. Uh, I'm sitting there watching this movie thinking, you know, this is my one time I get to watch a movie in a while. I was like, it's okay, it's okay. But, but, but when it ended, it was like, well done. Well done, sir. You know, whoever, whoever wrote that movie. You know, and on the opposite, in the opposite way, I watched a movie when I was in college once that was written to have a, the most disappointing ending. You know, I was... I, I, I was home on, on break, and I rented this movie. It was probably VHS back then. And the movie ended with the bad guy winning the day. All right? And the good guy loses. The good guy loses his reputation. The good guy loses his family. Um, and the bad guy, with the way the plot was written, the bad guy was made out um, to be the hero. And nobody knew this, the sinister element of this, this bad guy. And then credits roll, and like it wrecked me for like three days, like I like it just it just wrecked me. And I'm sitting there thinking. I mean, there was just this total sense of, of tragedy and disaster, and like I I hated it because the the writers um, played me in that in that sense. Like they they made me feel that way because it because of the end, because of the end. And when we look at the book of Exodus, it's important because it's a narrative. The telling of a story, it's important for us to see how the story ends because it's a big deal. That's the point of, of telling a story. So Exodus chapter 40 at the end, let's read the last couple of verses. Exodus 40 verses 34 to the end say, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night. And in the sight, the fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys in the sight of the Lord throughout all their journeys. I think that's the key, that, that the, the entire nation of Israel could see the presence of God throughout all their journeys, 486 years, generation after generation after generation. The end of the story is that God was with them, that God was with them. That The, the, the story didn't end with um, a ni nice tied-up little bow of like, and they'll have to ever after because what we see and what we know is that this is this has been a tough story. That there has been rebellion in a in a in a pretty short amount of time. This is not 486 years of history. This is 12 months. Okay, 12 months. 12 months ago they were slaves. Okay, but within that time, there was uh, rebellion. There was complaining. There was very aggressive, vicious accusations against God. Things like, God, you have brought us here to die. 
why did you do that? Not just, hey, I'm hungry, but why did you bring, and, and, and there's misrepresenting of the truth. God, why, we had food in Egypt, and we had, we, we had security in Egypt. Well, no, they didn't. They were slaves, and they were oppressed, and they were getting, their, their babies were being killed. But they said, wait, things were so much better for us, is what they said. Why have you brought us for uh, us and our children to die? And then, and then the whole golden calf. Um, it's a tough story, but it's a story where God is the hero. Consistently, over and over, and that God was with them throughout all of their generations. That, with, that the God that we see portrayed in the book of Exodus, and the, uh, the book of Exodus, again, is a foundational book. That the children of Israel, throughout those 40, 486 years, would go back to this written book. Moses wrote this book, and it was their, it was their history. They would go back to it and say, look, look at the things that God has done as proof that he is who he said he is and that he will keep his promises to us because he did, this, he did these things for us. He's, he's proven himself true, that he has proven himself faithful, that he is a God of steadfast love, as it says all throughout the Psalms, that he is trustworthy and that he has power to do miraculous things and that he has an ability to remain faithful even when we as a people are unfaithful that he'll be faithful even though we struggle with our unfaithfulness. The imagery that we see throughout the Old Testament of God's people when they rebel is, is, is the imagery of whoredom. And the word whore is, is, is used all throughout the Bible as a reference to idolatry. And when you look at this relationship between God and man, and when a man rebels, it's equating it to a husband or a wife who are, are, are leaving the covenant of marriage and not just stepping away or not just having an argument or not just saying, hey, this really isn't working, but they're going to a, another, a, a prostitute, and saying, I'm going here. I'm going to these places. I'm, going, I'm breaking it in, the most, in, in, in a very terrible, terrible, a, a, a terrible way. And God is saying, I will remain faithful. Even though you are not, and we're not just talking about you know, kind of walking away or a little struggle in the relationship or a little communication, just a, a flat-out run away, God says, I will be faithful forevermore, and I will continue to call you unto myself. And not only that, but I will discipline you as a son and as a daughter because I want what's best for you, even though you contradict the covenant, even though you sin, even though you fall, even though you're unfaithful, I am God, and I will be with you. It says, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of Israel throughout their journeys. That God is faithful past, that he told Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. The first couple, first couple verses in Exodus, the, the children of Israel became a great nation. Two million strong, we see in chapter 12. That God is a God, of, of, that God, is a God who is faithful in the present. I will walk with you. I will go with you. I will, I will split the Red Sea for you, that you, my presence will be with you on the mountain and you will feel it tremble. You can see the presence on the top of the mountain and that I will be a, a faithful God in the future, that there is, a, there is a coming hope and it's called the promised land and I will take you there. I will go before you. I will be like a hornet out before you and I will be the, ones who, I will be the one who drives out your enemies. I will be the one who, who clears the way for you. I will be the one who gives you success militarily as you go to the promised land i will be the one who does this so is it the god who is faithful past faithful present faithful future what we begin to see now that we're done with the book of exodus 
is that the book of Exodus, if you're a Christ follower, is an ancient, an ancient representation of our story. Almost verbatim, in a sense. It, I mean, it, the book of Exodus begins that with, with God creating a great nation from nothing. In Genesis, we see Abraham, who couldn't even have a child, but he miraculously gave him a child, and then um, 12 sons moved to Egypt because of the famine. The 12 sons grew. There was a group of 70. They multiplied over the course of the years, and they became a great nation. That God knows us before, our even before we were even born. My wife's, pregnant, my wife's pregnant right now, and I pray for the salvation of my children. And the, the whole notion of praying for children that we, we don't have yet, and I'm not just talking about the child that my wife is pregnant with, but like, I don't know what the future holds, but the whole idea of like praying for a, the soul of, of a potential fourth it just doesn't, it's hard to get my head around, but God knows that he, he knew you when the children of Israel were walking through the Red Sea. Isn't that crazy? That, that, that he, you, you weren't a concept that kind of came later, but he's always known you. Always, even then, thousands of years ago. He, he knew you were going to exist, that you were going to be born. He, he, know, he knew then your first, middle, and last name. And he also knew then the day that you will die. He knows the condition of your soul at this moment. And we, we've heard those things and we know those things, but they're things that we need to be reminded of. We also see that, 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 that the nation of Israel was essentially born in slavery and oppression. In the same way, we're born as, as, as slaves to sin. Let me read for you Romans chapter 6. Verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, but you have become obedient from the heart to a standard of teaching in which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness, that I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, which is a growing process of Christ-likeness. We see in the book of Exodus that there was somebody who was born and chosen to be a redeemer in the man Moses. We've talked about types. We've talked about the literary feature called a type, which is a, which is a veiled, shadowy representation of something greater to be fulfilled. We see that Moses was sent by God to the children of Israel, that Moses was the spokesperson of God, that Moses was the man that the people followed out of slavery and oppression, and that miraculous, miraculous things happened by the hand of Moses. And as they crossed the Red Sea, Moses is the one that they followed, and they followed him to the promised land. We see representation of Christ here that Jesus was sent to redeem us, that he is the very word of God, that he did miraculous things by the power of God, and that we are to follow him to our promised land. We see the Passover. 
which is the killing of a lamb, which is the shedding of blood, so that they might not die, so that the, that the curse would be lifted. And we see that in the death of Christ and the cross, who is called, be, who is called by John the Baptist the Lamb of God, a specific, rep, a specific point to the Passover. We see deliverance happen uh, by the children of Israel. And in Colossians 1, uh, verse 11, it says, May you be strengthened, speaking to believers, may, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness or from slavery or from oppression, and he has transferred us to a kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We see on Mount Sinai the giving of the words of God as the law. We see in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh in Jesus Christ. We see a call by God to live a life of obedience according to the covenant. We see in John chapter 14, verse 21, that there is a call to obedience on all of us. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him or show myself to him in ways that you could not otherwise be seen outside of obedience. We see in the children of Israel that they are disciplined when they sin. We see that at Massa and Meribah and at the calf, at the golden calf. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 says, uh, and, have, and you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. And this is a quote from the Psalms. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone that he accepts as sons. We see the children of Israel disciplined, and when you sin, you are disciplined. We see the call and the glory of the coming promised land for the children of Israel, that faith in God was not this faith in, I'm going to trust you, God, and it's just about this moment, but there was always a future trajectory. There was always something out there that was draw. There was a, there was a hope. There was an unrealized hope, and it was called the promised land. That God said, I will make of you a, a great nation, and by you all the families of the earth will be blessed, but I will, I will take you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey, and a land that has crops that have already been planted, and a land that has cities that have already been built. That I will let you walk into this turnkey establishment by my goodness, because I am God. And in the same way, we have, we have a promised land to look forward to. We have an inheritance, and it is, it is heaven, and it's hard for us to, to uh, imagine. It's hard for us to conceptualize because we're on this earth, but it is a future hope that your hope in God is not just a God of the moment. It is a God of the moment, but it's a God of the future as well, that we are called to something bigger and something better than where we're at now, and that has to be remembered. And as part of that concept that God is not just a God of the here and now, the chapter, chapter 40 ends by saying that when the glory of the Lord lifted and moved, that the people followed. That there is a progression of living with the children of Israel, that it doesn't end with the sweet happily ever after, everything is neatly tied up, 
boom, the, the end of the movie, everyone's, every, everything is good, and we can all just feel good about things. But it ends with the glorious promise of the coming promised land. And it begins with, and it ends with the promise that God is with you throughout all of your journeys. Um, but it also ends um, with an action that the people followed the Lord. So it doesn't end with just God saying, hey, I'm with you. But it says, where the, where the Lord led, the people followed. And I believe that this is a representation of our sanctification. When we look at the book of Exodus and we see all the things that happen, and we see the parallels between our story and the, and the story of the children of Israel, I believe that this is the element of sanctification. Because what we know of is, is we see the future of the children of Israel, and it's not glorious. It's not just everyone's marching shoulder to, sh shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, saying, hey, we have a great God, and he's doing everything. We're just living lives of obedience. Like, there were, there were face plants. There was struggle. There was sin. There was repentance. There was a turning back. There, was, there, was, there were times of great worship. There were times of great success. They did take the promised land, and things were glorious. But it was ups and downs. It was ups and downs. And there's a call on God's people to watch and to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12. So the story ends with a promise, a glorious promise of the promised land. The story ends with a promise that God will be with us. It, it ends with a promise that his presence is with us right now even though tomorrow is uncertain. And it ends with the children of Israel living in a life of, that required ongoing obedience. Ongoing because they had to follow their God. Sanctification for the life of the believer is a partnership with God. That God has a role to lead us and to pull us and to draw us, and we have a role to follow. It's, it's both and. In our salvation, God is the one who, who calls us. God is the one who regenerates us. But while we're living on this earth, there are acts of obedience that we must do that fall in line with our God. That we're called to follow, that we're called to trust, that when we sin, we're called to confess, and that he will discipline. And that what we have in Scripture is a clear path to restoration. So when we sin, we know what we're supposed to do about that. When, when, we, when we have broken relationships, we know where we're supposed to go with that. When we have... When we have uh, talents and treasures and, 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 and gifts, that we know what we, we are supposed to do with those things, that it shows us in Scripture. The thing is, is that with the children of Israel, they knew that the promised land was coming, but they didn't know exactly what tomorrow held. They didn't know what tomorrow—I mean, this was, a, this was a year after their exodus. So it seems like if you're hearing all these things from God that say, listen— I will do these great things, and I will take you to the promised land. It would be really easy for the children of Israel to say, all right, let's go. I can't wait to be there next week. But it didn't happen that way. And similarly, we don't know what tomorrow holds for us. Like tomorrow is, is for some of us, might be incredibly uncertain right now. It might be uncertain in the sense of all of us, don't, we don't know what tomorrow holds, and we don't know if we're going to get injured or sick or die. We don't know if our job will be there for us tomorrow. We don't know what politics will be like. We, like, we don't know if our car is going to break down. We don't know what tomorrow holds. That's, that's a certain level of uncertainty. But some of you might be looking at tomorrow saying, I really don't feel good about my future. 
I don't know what it looks like. I don't know where my job is going. I don't know where my relationships are going. My finances don't look good. My parents aren't doing well. Or there's health, bad health in my family. Whatever, you might actually have specific uncertainty. And the children of Israel had the same things. They weren't, ar- they weren't archaic cavemen back then think, and, and didn't have minds like we do. But we are called to not just trust in our own understanding, but trust in the fact that there is a greater hope out there. And God has said, I am with you right now. And I'm calling you to obedience at this moment. And tomorrow will take care of itself. There is a great future promise in the hope of heaven. One of the best examples that was given to me about the hope of heaven, um, and I've shared this in here before, is... We are not called to be satisfied by the appetizer. Um, somebody, I was talking to another pastor here, just, and I was just telling him, like, it's hard for me to get my head around heaven. Like, I, get, I get what the Bible has to say, and I really do believe it's going to be glorious, and I really do believe that it's, it's, it's just hard to comprehend, but... I love my wife, I love my job, I love my kids, and I live in Mount Pleasant, and like, life is not terrible, <laughs> and, 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 it's, and, it's, and it's hard to look forward to something that's hard to conceptualize when, when, things are, when things are going okay now, and the encouragement that this pastor gave me was, he said, we have to be sure that we're not filling up on the appetizer, like, it's okay to enjoy it, but we need to see it for what it is, that this isn't the main course, it was never intended to be, but the appetizer could still be good. But if we keep cramming those appetizers down our throat and find ourselves completely satisfied, then that's where the problem is. So it's that path that's, that I don't, know, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how to apply this completely in my life. But to walk this path of, of, a, of a godly discontentment, of a righteous discontentment of like, I, thank you, Lord, for these gifts. I want to live a life of joy, but I don't want to be satisfied because there's a future hope. And when things are uncertain, to know that I'm not supposed to know what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm just supposed to trust my God and that my daily call is to fix my eyes on Jesus. And when he moves, I move. I'm not talking about moving to Charlotte, (laughs) but when he moves, I move. When he convicts, I respond. When he shows me sin, I address it. When he shows me things that I ought to be doing or, or shoring up in my life, that I'm on it. And I'm a man in the word. I'm a man in prayer. I'm a man who's committed to the body. And I'm a man that's committed to worship. That these are the things that he's called us to because of the great promise that's coming, because he said he'll be with us now, and that I'm supposed to fix my eyes on Jesus. This is how the book of Exodus ends. It's a good ending. Let me pray for us. Father, as as we wrap this up, I thank you that you are a God of faithfulness and that you will walk with us throughout all of our journeys, through our face plants and our sin and our rebellion, through our uncertainties and our questions and our dissatisfaction. And Father, you are a God who walks with us through our joys and our mountaintops and our our successes. We thank you for your faithfulness Forgive us for our unfaithfulness. And Father, as we look back at the book of Exodus, may we look at it as as a banner uh, that screams the goodness of God and the faithful trustworthiness 
of our Savior. We thank you for the work of Christ on the cross that all of this foreshadows. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.